You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, a week ago, last Monday, I was riding my bike on the Burke-Gilman Trail, and uh, up ahead on the path, there were people who were waving at me. And I first thought, oh, this is nice. Uh, now, usually this doesn't happen to me. I am... Um, uh, I'm not a real biker. I wear um, old school cotton sweats, uh, kind of keep my head down. I'm riding an old uh, mountain bike. And um, so I try not to attract much attention, actually. But for some reason, I was this morning coming up on a hairpin turn. There were people who were there who were, who were waving. And as I got closer, they started to say stuff like, hey, uh, slow down, slow down. Uh, the, you might want to get off your bike and walk. There's ice ahead. Now, when I heard that, my first reaction, I'm not proud of this, my first reaction was, <laughs> I've been riding bikes on ice since before you were born, brother. And, uh, you know, I, I used to live in Boston and uh, did grad school, riding my bike every day through the snow in Boston. I mean, how bad could it be, right? Then I had a second thought. I thought, you know, somewhere between the brace that was on my wrist and the real look of concern on their face, I thought, maybe I should take this seriously. So luckily I did, and I got off my bike, and I walked around that hairpin turn, and there were, there were bikers all over the cement, actually. It was like, it was, it was a horror show. Um, for about 80 yards, uh, there, uh, Blakely, there was, uh, the whole sidewalk and Burke Gillen Trail was just sheer ice. You couldn't see it because it was dark and it was sort of sleeting, raining. Um, but people were down all over the place. And so I very carefully walked up the road where there's a little bit more texture in the surface and got to the end of it. And when I got there, uh, there, there was another guy, and we started to just wave people on the other side to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, stop, slow down, slow down, you explain, you got to get off your bike, et cetera. And um, one guy, there was a real biker, he had all the spandex and the fancy helmet and everything, and he had earbuds in. I could hear his music was too loud for me on the outside of his head. And he kept going, what, what, what? We're like, there's ice ahead, get off your bike. He didn't like that. So he just put the buds right back in, and he just went, just kind of went for it. And we turned, and we watched this guy make it 20, 30, 40 yards, and then bam! I mean, it was awful to watch, you know, this guy had to go through that. Now, I was there for a, quite a while, and uh, it was interesting that about half the people uh, got off their bike and walked. But about the other half of you all just said, I can do this. I got it, right? But I didn't see a single guy actually successfully bike across, uh, guy and gal, by the way, uh, that ice. Everybody who tried went down. And I thought, there is a lesson in this, is there not? And I think the lesson is by the end of the day, the only people in life who do not have road rash on their body are people who can entrust themselves to others. Right? I was tempted at first to say, I can do this alone, but I am here healthy today, I'm sure, in part because I said, you know, maybe these people have some value to me at this moment. I don't know them. They're strangers. I don't quite understand what's around this corner, but I'm going to trust them. And uh, I was happy that I did. You could also ask yourself, since our series is about bold, who was bolder uh, in that situation? Was it the people who said, I am tough, and I've been riding bikes for a long time, I'm just going to go for it. They might have felt bold. Or was it the people who had the humility to entrust themselves into a little community and say, you know what, maybe I should do what they say and actually walk. And they're the ones who made it across. I think they were bolder. Um, 
So our series is called Bold Communities Living with the King in the Kingdom of Heaven Today, week two. Last week we saw that this thing Jesus talks about, the good news of the kingdom, isn't something that's up there or someday. It's right here, right now. And tonight we learn that as the kingdom is coming, it's coming to us principally through people. We're going to think about people. And think about the friends uh, in our life. So we got another parable. Let's open up our Bibles, please. Uh, Luke chapter 16, first nine verses. If you're grabbing the pew Bible in front of you, please turn to page 851. This is a doozy of a story, in the Bible at least. Uh, first nine, if you're able, would you stand? Let's read this story aloud together. And when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. Then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. And then the manager said to himself, what will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, and how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Well, as I say, this is a churlish, dodgy oyster of a parable uh, that does not give up its secrets without a fight. I mean, come on, what in the world does this thing mean? I, people have wanted to argue with me all day about this parable. I'm getting email. <laughs> and I'll tell you, there are like two dozen plausible interpretations. And that's part of why it's rich. A lot of different ways you could see it. And it's offensive almost any different way you read it. I love that about this. I love this. one of my favorite parables. Let me uh, just recap the story with you very quickly in terms of four C words. Uh, charges, crisis, con, and clan. Look, this story begins with charges. Apparently, this man is a steward. He works for a wealthy man in the house, but someone else in the house has complained about it, brought a charge against him. He's wasting all of your money to the rich man. Now, we don't know if the charge is true or false, but it brings upon a crisis. That's the second a C word. He's losing his job, and he says, I don't know if uh, what I'll do next. What will I do next? He's got an uncertain future. I am uh, not strong enough to dig, and I'm too proud to beg. So what, what will I do? This leads him to our first, fourth, uh, third C, sorry, the con. Uh, 
he gets an idea. It's a little bit of a con game. He says, I bet there's going to be a time lag between the fire, the announcement of the firing to me and the announcement of the firing to my master's debtor, the people that owe him stuff. And so I'm going to take advantage of that lag and call his debtors in one by one and slash their bills. I mean, but these are big bills. Um, it's enough grain to feed 150 people for a year. It's enough oil. It's the amount of oil that 146 uh, Palestinian uh, olive trees would yield in a typical year. And so they get these huge discounts. Obviously, these guys are going to be very happy about that. And they'll pour that happiness out on this steward. He thinks, if I do this, maybe when I'm fired, they'll open up their homes for me and I'll have a place to go. So what he decides to do is make friends through this elaborate con, which leads us to the fourth clan. His plan is that he will have a family who will welcome him into their homes. Now, he's dishonest, uh, and that troubles us, and we're even more troubled by the fact that both he and Jesus find something in him to commend. He's shrewd, Jesus says. He's a shrewd manager, and there's something that you and I have to learn from this scoundrel. So, what is it exactly? Well, I've been trying to figure this out all week, and I thought, I gotta show up, and Sunday's coming quick, and I gotta have something to say to you. What in the world does this thing mean? I'm in a little bit of a funk about other things. Uh, on Montlake, in a traffic jam, of course, wishing I were on my bike, and this comes to me. Almost as though from the Lord, I heard this. And I want to share this with you, because I think, for me at least, this is the meaning of this story. Let me, let me, let me try it on you. I thought the Lord was saying to me in, that, in a moment in my life, it was very personal, George, and there are three parts to this, will you let me help you? Will you let me help you? And the second part is, I have put friends in your life to give you a new future. And the third part is, through them, you will meet me. And I just wonder if that connects with you at all tonight. For someone here, it might. For someone here, it might be the case that God led you to church tonight just so that you could hear these three invitations. Friend, would you let me help you? And friend, I have put people in your life, they're already pre-positioned to lead you to a new future. And through those friends, you will meet me. Now, I think that's not far from the spirit of this parable, but let me back up with you and just help you see how I get there, at least. And maybe you'll end up in a different place. That's fine, too. But I think you'll benefit from two steps back. Whenever you find yourself face-to-face with a Charlie Dodger oyster of a parable that's hard to understand, uh, take a look at the context. In other words, step back far enough to see a broader view of the context. So we'll do this twice, and then we'll close by stepping forward. The first step back is this, and it's to look at the literary context and ask the question, what is a parable anyways, and what kind of parable does this one appear to be? Well, this is a how much more parable, a how much more parable. Jesus tells several of them, and it immediately surfaces the idea that this is going to be about relative value. Something is worth more than something else, oftentimes. You remember these parables. Jesus will say, hey, if 
evil parents know how to good give good gifts to their children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you good gifts? Remember that one? Or there's another one where Jesus says, um, if the uh, if ravens of the air are uh, provided for by their heavenly Father, how much more worth are you to God? That's the... That's the kind of parable it is. And let me just remind you that the word parable in English comes from a Greek word that's almost exactly the same, but it has two Greek words uh, as components. And it, they are to, to throw and alongside. And so a parable is a story that Jesus throws alongside a surprising reality. But here's the thing. Most of us make a mistake interpreting parables when we confuse a parable with an allegory. Let me just take you back to your seventh grade geometry. Anybody actually taking seventh grade geometry right now? Uh, I love that class. Maybe it's eighth grade. Um, you learn in geometry that two parallel lines uh, are, are, are two lines that are in the same plane that never intersect. Let me suggest to you that a parable is like two nearly parallel lines. I say nearly parallel lines because if they're just nearly parallel, not literally parallel, they will at some point inevitably cross one another. In that point of intersection between the story and reality is the point you want to focus on. There's usually one big idea that Jesus is trying to get across with his, his, his parable. Now, an allegory is different. An allegory is a symbolic story in which every element of the story has some kind of symbolic representation or correspondence to reality. So it's multivalent. In other words, there are many points of contact to reality. If you push a parable too hard, you get into trouble asking yourself, well, is God, this, is, is God the dishonest one? I, I need to start to fret about it. No. Let's ask, what's the big idea of this parable? Then we'll make the connection to reality. And the big idea in a much uh, uh, how much more parable has to do with a comparison around a value. And so what is the, what's valuable in this story? Just ask yourself, what's valuable to this shrewd manager? It's in, it's in the end, it's people. People are what's valuable to him. I mean, he could have taken the oil, he could have taken the wheat, he could have taken the money from these people, but in the end, he doesn't want that. He wants something more valuable than that. He wants them. He wants relationship with them. He wants these people to define his future life and offer him future welfare. It's their homes he's after, really. <laughs> Jesus says, that's very, very shrewd. So I would suggest to you that the big idea here is, is this. That this is just a hypothesis at the moment, but the, the currency of the kingdom is relationship. Jesus wants us to see that. When you realize that, you could be shrewd too, that the currency of the kingdom is relationship. There's nothing more valuable than people. Let your theology teach you that. Just think about the big doctrines uh, that the Bible teaches. Creation. Well, people are made to reflect God's image. There's nothing more valuable in all creation than human beings because there's nothing closer to God that looks more like God than you. Incarnation. God becomes a human person. Wow, does that not elevate us to the pinnacle of all creation, that God would take our nature into his being? Redemption. God gives his life to save people. Well, uh, something is worth what you're willing to pay for it. He gives his only son for you. How could you be more valuable? And then fourth, just think of sanctification. The Holy Spirit indwells people. He makes his home in us. We are his temple. So in all of these ways, we see that there's rich theology behind this teaching of Jesus, that people have ultimate value in creation more than anything else. 
And I also want to suggest to you tonight that people are important and should be important to you and to me because people shape our lives. Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. Focus 13.20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. The Proverbs writer is saying, Relationship becomes destiny. The people that you choose to hang out with will be the people who, de- who, who, who determine what you will look like and what you will be like in the years to come. But people matter. I can't actually think about my life today, or at least what I love about my life today, without thinking of people in my life, Greg and, and Jeannie and Walt. And I just want to give you a moment as we worship Jesus to be thankful for the people in our lives. Who was it? A young life a leader, a, a grandmother, a coach, a Sunday school teacher, a colleague who really helped you become the better version of yourself that you are today. These people God has used to give you the future uh, that you're having. So give thanks to God uh, tonight for those people. And ask yourself, do I really value them properly? Do I value these people in my life? When I got up to that blind corner and uncertain future, I had to calculate the value of people. Because like I'm a raging introvert, uh, individualist, very independent. And I, I um, when they're saying, get off your bike, I'm going, mm, I'm, tr- I'm doing the math on, do I value these people and what they're telling me more than I value my autonomy at that time? And we honestly have to do that calculation, in all of us. Okay, so hold on to that. Let's move. Let's take the second step back. Uh, we've looked at the literary context. Now we're taking a second step back to look at the narrative context in which Luke records this parable. Because he didn't have to put that parable in his gospel. But why did he do it? What's the story, the broader story Luke is trying to tell? Well, this how much more parable is useful to Luke because he's trying to tell a welcoming home story throughout the whole of his writing. By the way, Luke's uh, got the most uh, text in the New Testament. Any other people? Most people think Paul. It's not. It's Luke writes more, and because he writes the Gospel of Luke, and he writes the Book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. It's a two-volume set, and he, it's a long story that begins with Jesus. In Luke, Jesus is going from house to house. It's really a story of a welcoming home. Uh, he, in these houses, he's displaying his grace. He's teaching about his grace. He's changing our idea of what a home is and how people relate to one another, what relationship is really like. And then uh, by the time, uh, by the way, he's in a house, as he tells us. If you, you'll see that in chapter 14, verse 1. He tells this parable inside a house that's a mixture of religious people and non-religious people. It's scandalous that they're there together, and that's the occasion for this. He's also just told three other house stories, including the prodigal. Um, in this text, he uses the word for house in four different verb forms, noun forms. The word for house, and I apologize for giving this word, but it is a useful word that we're going to use more around here, and that's the word oikos, oikos. I know it's a yogurt, but it's also the Greek word for house. I don't know why they named the yogurt that, but anyways, uh, oikos means house. And you know, the Greek word for a manager is oikonomos. Uh, uh, oikonomos is someone who rules the house. It's someone who determines the values and the culture of the house. That's what this manager is. And so Luke's uh, kind of rubbing it in a lot when he uses his favorite word oikos uh, here in this parable. When we get to part two, the book of Acts, we see that oikos becomes a strategy for the early church. 
After Pentecost, the followers of Jesus Christ are meeting house by house across Jerusalem, breaking bread together. And this fellowship is what starts to spread the good news of Jesus throughout the city. And it happens in other cities as well. Day by day, the Lord added to their numbers those who are being saved, Luke tells us, through these houses. And then ultimately, as he describes these houses in Acts 2 and Acts 4, Luke uses idealized language that comes from Deuteronomy and it comes from the prophetic tradition in Israel, as if to say that the thing for which Israel has been yearning all along is ultimately fulfilled in the end of times in Jesus Christ. And we're experiencing the beginning of that fulfillment today. Justice, peace, reconciliation, care for the poor, unity. All these things seem to be happening in this new house. It's almost like there's a new oikonomy breaking out because of Jesus. So I I think if you look at that whole picture, you realize, wow, when this guy, what's shrewd is, he's, whether he knows it or not, he is participating in the future as it's coming. He didn't even know any theology, but he knows that he's better off if he establishes relationship if he finds a welcoming home for his future, because that's the future for all of us. Now, we need community in America. We are uh, in a social capital desert these days. Recently, I was reading about John Cacioppo, who is a uh, researcher at University of Chicago, who's in the New York Times recently. He collects some of the research on loneliness. Let me give you four facts, just for fun, on loneliness. First fact... This was surprising to me. Loneliness is contagious. You can catch it. If your friend is lonely today, you have a 25% chance of being lonelier than you are four years from now. Isn't that interesting? You just catch it from your friend. Number two, loneliness is bad for your body. It's as bad, science is telling us now, as smoking and three times as bad as obesity. Think about that next time you're on the treadmill. Do you work as hard to make friends as you do to keep your body from being overweight? And I know I don't. Three, uh, loneliness hurts your brain. Catch this. A stroke in a mouse housed alone for two weeks causes three times the neural damage than one with a companion. Three times. Number four, loneliness shortens your life. A national study in 2002 predicted who would die in 2008 on the basis of loneliness. So when we say get in a small group, we're just trying to save your life, friends. Right? That's what it's about. Here's a quote from Cacioppo. He says, Our culture emphasizes going from childhood dependence to adult independence. But what it means to be an adult at a social species is not to be independent of others, but to be a member on whom others in the group can depend. He goes, we got it wrong in the West. It's not about independence. It's about interdependence. And that's what this guy goes for. I'm going to bring what I have, even if I've stolen it from somebody else, into relationship with others who will bring what they have. And then we'll have interdependence. He gets it. He's shrewd that way. This is about the kingdom. This is about the mission. Uh, Demonstrating a new culture, a new economy. The culture of Jesus in communities that the world can see. One of the things I love about UPC is we are ambivalent about our size. I mean, sometimes we wring our hands about declining attendance. Oh, we're shrinking a little bit. I want to say, I'm not so sure that's a problem for us. We may be right-sizing and getting back to the size we were uh, during Bruce Larson's era. 
In some ways, uh, we're more personal, more relational when we're a little bit smaller. And our aspirations here at UPC have never been to project a bigger church for Seattle to see. No, actually, our aspirations all along have been to project a movement of smaller Christian communities across this city that are more personal, more relational, more intimate, and more attuned to the needs of their neighbors. That's who we are. And so that's why it's so important for you to open up your small group or get into a small group during the six weeks of Lent. This is a corporate spiritual discipline that expresses our sense of mission and our call. So the question is, do you lever, leverage what you have to invest in kingdom family, in the family of the, of the future, the family that's coming? I had to decide what I wanted to do once I got on the other side of that ice patch. Um, I was free now to go, and I could just jump on my bike and go off on my own. But you know what? I didn't want to at that point. I wanted to be a part of this community. People had, had helped me by warning me, and I wanted to do the same on the other side. It made me feel important. So, and plus, I had, my resources were a little bit of time. I could afford it, and I had these great bright yellow gloves, which were good in the, in the dawn. So I'm waving people, and I'm going, hey, stop, get off your bike. Hey, look, this is, you know, and helping people out. It was, it was a highlight of my day, that experience of community out there. And you do that too. When you share your financial resources here, when you tithe. By the way, did you read about the guy who won the lottery, $300 million, and he's going to tithe? Do you think you would win the lottery too if you tithed? No, I'm just, I don't know. Too bad, he's, he's not a UPCer. Dang. When you say, hey, let's go and start a group together, or you say, hey, let's adopt a refugee family together, or let's go and, and, and camp out with this friend of ours that's on hospice and just spend all of our time there, or let's go launch a new venture to bless people, that's investing in kingdom family. The currency of the kingdom is relationship. I believe this uh, parable tells us that. The currency of the kingdom is relationship. Now the question is, having stepped back twice, will we step forward? Will we step in? I was on the phone this week with a friend of mine down in the Bay Area, and he said, George, I took my daughter to uh, the train station. That's how she gets to school. And I sat there in the car, and I watched through the windshield, and there was a little huddle of, of um, her fellow schoolmates, girls, that were all waiting for the train. And my daughter walked up to them, and she stopped about 12 yards away and started fiddling with her phone. She would not join the group. And he goes, it just broke my heart. I mean, she's this delightful, wonderful, beautiful girl. And yet she could not take the risk to join uh, a group of friends that were there. And uh, I thought, how often does God look through the windshield of heaven at my life and say, gosh, George, I've got community for you. I've got a rich experience of friendship right there within your reach. I wish you really could value yourself. I wish you could really value these friends. I wish you had the courage and the boldness to step in and participate in what I'm doing through this circle of friends. We've got a great story. We've got a gospel story that we're living in. I mean, you think about these four C's. Truly, charges have been brought against us. We're rebels on the run from God. And this put us in crisis before a holy God. What does it mean to be a sinner? Well, you're in trouble. And yet, the good news is that God and his son, Jesus Christ, has foisted the greatest con ever on the powers of darkness. The evil one thought that he had a great victory over the Son of God by seeing him crucified. And yet the truth is, in Jesus' defeat, we find our greatest victory. Forgiveness, eternal life, relationship with a loving God. And because of that, we also are invited into a new clan, a new family, 
homes that welcome us, and doors through whom we welcome others into our homes. So let's get back to where I began, at least. These three invitations. God saying to you, will you let me help you? I have put friends in your life pre-positioned to lead you to a new future. And through them, you will meet me. So if you're out around the Brook Gilman Trail this week and you see a pack of slick riders who all look decked out in their gear, you might see in the middle of some of them uh, an old guy wearing uh, damp cotton on a, a 30-year-old mountain bike, and that would be me. If you look at their faces and the sun is just beginning to come up and it's glowing and it's a beautiful picture of contentment and joy, it's not just because that pack has made it through the ice. It might just be because that pack has discovered that the ice itself is melting because the new age, the kingdom of Jesus, is coming in all of its glory. I want to close with the words of Leslie Newbegin, who writes this. The light cast by the first rays of the morning sun shining on the face of a company of travelers, a company of travelers, will be evidence that a new day is coming. The travelers are not the source of the witness, but only the locus of it. To see for oneself that it is true that a new day is really coming, one must turn around, face the opposite way, be converted and then one's own face will share the brightness and become part of the evidence. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, no one has greater friends than this, that one would lay down his life, and you have laid down your life for us in Jesus Christ. Thank you. And thank you for the friends around us here in this room, and thank you for the friends that are not here. We ask that you would give us the boldness to engage the fullness of the gift that you want to give us in relationship, particularly in relationship with those who follow Jesus and who will lead us to follow him more closely ourselves. We pray this in your name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.